for years, there's been this dance going on between private operatives, you know, corporate investigators, and journalists. And I think the time has come to pull that curtain away. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Today, Rain founder David Lawrence speaks to Barry Meyer, a former New York Times reporter and the author of three books. His work has helped raise awareness of the roots of the opioid epidemic at the hands of Purdue Pharma, cherry-picked information about drug trial findings, and to tell the story of Robert Levinson, an American held hostage in Iran accused of spying. In all of his work, Meyer has worked to reveal unspoken truths. His latest book, Spooked, The Trump Dossier, Black Cube, and the Rise of Private Spies, shows how the rich and powerful use private spies, political operatives for hire, and the press to spread their message. Let's listen. Barry, uh, first of all, great privilege and honor to have a chance to speak with you, and congratulations on your uh, new book. I thought it'd be helpful uh, for the audience just to perhaps outline a little bit of your career and um, speak about you know, the writings you've done both at the New York Times and beyond. And so maybe you can just give us a quick overview of uh, what inspired you to write your most recent book. Uh, David, sure thing. And, and thanks very much for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. Um, I spent uh, the past 35 years, essentially, in the newspaper business, uh, the vast majority of them at the New York Times. And over the course of my career, uh, if I had to summarize what I've been interested in, it's basically, uh, you know, investigations that take place at the intersection of health, public policy, and business. I spent a good portion of my career at the Times investigating what I will call, for the lack of a better word, a bad or problem, drugs and medical devices. I was the first reporter, national reporter in the country, to really focus in on uh, the drug OxyContin and its illegal marketing by its manufacturer, Purdue Pharma. And the first book that I wrote, which was called Painkiller, uh, came out in 2003 and the, told the story of Purdue OxyContin and the uh, company's secretive owner, although they're not so secretive now, the, uh, the Sackler family. So I, I did a lot of work uh, through the aughts and into the early teens on uh, drugs and medical devices. And in, I think it was 2008, I was also contacted by friends of Robert Levinson, a former FBI agent turned private investigator uh, who disappeared in Iran in 2007. And uh, as a result of that contact, I was given access to Bob's um, emails and personal files and did a lot of reporting, uh, reconstructing events that took him to Iran and also the search for him afterwards. As part of my agreement with the Levinson family, however, I told them that I wouldn't do anything to jeopardize or endanger Bob's health and safety. And since I had become aware of the fact uh, very early in my reporting that he had been a consultant to the CIA and may have gone to Iran in that capacity, uh, basically we just gathered string and sat on that story for about six or seven years, which was a unique experience in my career as a journalist. 
then in 2013, I believe it was, um, or 14, the, the Associated Press ran an article disclosing what we had known, which was Bob's ties to the CIA. Uh, we followed up with our story, and all the reporting that I had done over the years became the basis for my second book, which was called Missing Man, and, and basically told Bob's story the search for him and the sort of slapdash world of both FBI and the CIA when it came to uh, running these overseas operations. Um, Then, uh, leading up to the present, I decided to leave the Times Retire at the end of 2017. I had been there almost 30 years. It was at that point that I decided to write yet another book. I hadn't apparently learned enough from the uh, torture that goes uh, into writing the previous two books. And and that became the basis of Spooked, my new book, which basically uh, delves into the uh, private intelligence industry. And the genesis for that was twofold. One was, at the time of my retirement, uh, there were a number of big stories that were breaking. There was the uh, story of the the Steele dossier or, or these memos about Donald Trump's supposedly, uh, supposed involvement with Russia. Uh, there was the Harvey Weinstein case and the a scandal involving this medical device company called Theranos. And I decided, you know, these people seem to be all over the place. There's a huge industry, hidden industry out there that no one's really written about. And so let me flip the script and uh, investigate this industry. Barry, obviously a common denominator within all three of your books has been your ability to be ahead of the curve and see ahead of the curve, whether it involves the geopolitical conflict with Iran, the disappearance of Bobby Levinson, whom I also knew in his capacity as a FBI agent and then uh, in his subsequent career, as well as his family members, uh, but as you looked out at the opioid crisis and responsibility for it, it continues to play out very much in the courts and the headlines. And now, of course, the book spooked. Maybe you can uh, begin by explaining what was your inspiration for the book spooked, or maybe stated differently, why you felt there was a need to write the book. What I realized was that, you know, kind of the, the hidden thread connecting them all were private investigators. I mean, they were in, in, immersed in all of these cases and uh, and in some ways kind of manipulating uh, events in all of these cases. And I thought, you know, this is this huge industry. I did some checking around. It had mushroomed in the past decade. So I thought this was a good time to, to, um, to look at this industry and and the kind of hidden impact it was having uh, on our lives. You spoke a little bit about the manipulation of uh, information, obviously a theme throughout your book. And at a time where there continues to be declining trust in established institutions, whether governmental agencies, companies in the private sector, um, even NGO groups, but very much uh, the media. Can you Perhaps uh, speak to what some of the lessons are uh, in terms of what you found in um, your investigative research for the book. Well, you know, I'm a creature of the media. You know, I spent my entire life 
in journalism. I'm, I'm very proud of the work that most journalists do because I think we really do uh, provide a public service, and, and that's the motivation that uh, that drives most journalists. Um, what I found uh, most astonishing and concerning about the the whole episode of the Trump dossier was um, the willingness uh, or the naivete of some journalists to basically uh, be played by corporate, you know, by by private operatives, and and to have their um, reporting colored by these, you know, by allegations that they were given. I, I was always, you know, sort of, you know, kind of my guide star as a reporter was to scrutinize things, you know. Company, a company makes a claim about its product. Well, you don't make, accept that at face value. You try to go behind the data, go look at the studies, try to analyze what's going on independently and see if, in fact, there's any scientific validity to what they're saying. In the case of the dossier, the Trump dossier, that was more difficult because here you had, you know, this so-called raw intelligence uh, and there was no way of knowing exactly where it was coming from, how reliable it was, whatever. But because of the political tempo of the times, I believe, you know, and the, you know, this, this fragmentation that's taking place across the media landscape, there are a lot of people, both, particularly within the mainstream media, who kind of accepted the allegations uh, within the dossier without uh, scrutinizing them. They also accepted the persona that was being presented by Christopher Steele, this former MI6 agent, without scrutinizing him. And they weren't looking at these two former Wall Street Journal reporters, Glenn Simpson and Peter Fritsch, who formed Fusion GPS, the firm that hired Christopher Steele, to look at their track record and who had they represented before? How reliable were they? Had they used sort of distasteful or slimy tactics in, in other jobs that they did? So, you know, there was, there was just nowhere close to the type of scrutiny that would normally have been given to a story. And I guess in, in, in spooked, what I sort of conclude, unfortunately, is that, you know, this was both a symptom of Trump, a symptom of the fragmentation that's going on within the media, as well as the political polarization that's going on within the media. And it's a very damaging, it's a very damaging trend because it damages the credibility of one of our most important institutions. And Barry, I think it's important to point out, and I'll uh, I want to make sure people understand that this podcast is not a political podcast in uh, defense of Trump. And without going into your political views, which I know a bit about, um, this was an effort, was it not, to sort of take a step back, look at this one example as an object lesson or a teachable moment about what could, what could go wrong, what is going wrong, and what has to be rectified. Right, and just to sort of hammer home your, uh, inter- you know, your point that you're making, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. Uh, the book is very critical of Donald Trump, and 
I didn't delve into this episode to uh, defend Donald Trump. Uh, I looked at this as an example of how uh, how the media, the, you know, there's been a relationship for many years, for decades, between private operatives and journalists. A, you know, a private detective, private investigator will come to a journalist with material they've gathered on behalf of a client and say to that journalist, hey, I've got this great story for you, but you can't mention me at all in it. You know, my fingerprints can't be on the story, and most journalists will say, great, you've done my work for me, I'll just go and confirm this stuff, we'll write it up, okay, and move on. The notion that a seven-plus figure political dossier uh, became the news, the basis for congressional hearings, uh, etc., irrespective of where you are in the political spectrum, does set a, a, a precedence and one that, you know, if it's not remediated, you know, holds a, uh, uh, all sorts of implications, again, regardless of which side of the political spectrum you are on. And we're continuing to see maybe some of the consequences of a highly politicized um, world um, play out. And you speak about fragmentation. And I, I actually want to use um, a little bit of a, uh, a different lens around this. Yes, the media has fragmented. Yes, people can get their sources of information from a myriad of places. But the fact of the matter is um, the model for news coverage has been seriously disrupted. Um, you can call it competition or you can call it fragmentation or you can call it Um, You know, basically everyone today through social media and every small group potentially is in the news business, no less our social media platforms. But, you know, uh, what I'll refer to is the established institutions of trust around the press, whether it's print media, broadcast media, etc., has had a very, very challenging series of decades that has seen... Um, the loss of the revenue base that supported their efforts, and also a, a competition for those for advertising and the eyeballs or clicks that drive. And there there is a competition going on, which is not necessarily a competition around journalistic standards. It's who who first, who can attract through sensational headlines or possibly politicized headlines an audience and who can build it and who can do it quickly uh, within the boundaries of First Amendment protections against lawsuit for defamation and slander, etc. And maybe you could help the audience sort of understand, because I think that was certainly as I read your book, I felt that that was, you know, very much at the heart of what might be driving um, the decisions around whose sources we run with, how quickly we run the lens that's applied to it. And with the, with the knowledge that many of these sources, whether they're private investigators or they're lawyers involved in cases, they have, as you say, uh, a, a wide diversity of sources that they can go to. So 
um, the pressure on particular media outlets that have to survive and have to find the revenue to survive and not lay off reporters has to be very, very intense. And that has to be part and parcel of, I'll call it, the warning that you're giving to people. Well, you know, I think there's uh, a couple of ways, different ways of approaching that. I like to think, I may be fooling myself, that that the major newspapers in the United States, be it um, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the news function of the Wall Street Journal, um, are pretty straight. You know, they kind of deal with things from a news reporting perspective, um, in a, in, still in a, in a fairly traditional way. I mean, you can point to exceptions, but, um, you know, we have to remember that before the dossier was posted online, Buzz, BuzzFeed, in um, January of 2017, it was shopped around to, you know, the Washington Post, the New York Times, uh, the New Yorker, and nobody wrote about it, you know, prior to its public release by BuzzFeed. Uh, what I have noticed, and, and you know, perhaps it's been uh, a reflection of watching too much, or for a time, watching too much cable news, uh, uh, when, when, you know, when we were all locked down, um, particularly television, uh, has become uh, increasingly politicized. I mean, you did have, you know, MSNBC on one end of the spectrum and Fox on the other end of the spectrum. But now, you know, CNN has sort of become much more politicized, at least in my perspective, in the way it presents the news. And, um, and it's become... You know, it, it, we've gotten to the point where these outlets are just broadcasting what they think their viewers, readers, what have you, want to hear and how they want to hear it and who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And, and it's become a very black and white, oversimplified uh view of the world. And um, I, I really personally, as someone who spent their life as a journalist, uh, don't believe that that approach really serves the public. Because all these outlets are now doing, pretty much, is reinforcing the opinions, views, what have you, of their audiences. And, and in some ways, they're afraid not to do that because they're afraid of losing their audiences. I mean, even on, you know, the right wing with the, you know, with the emergence of these ultra-right wing outlets like um, OAN and Newsmax, you know, it seems like Fox, which once, you know, had a, had a hold over that end of the political spectrum, is being driven further to the right. And, um, you know, so... I think overall what's going on in the media is not a good thing. And again, getting back to um, the impact that um, 
you know, the, the Steele dossier had on events, uh, I don't think that would have happened uh, absent this kind of polarization. So you're basically, as, as you think about cause and effect, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out, as many people are, you know, what came first here, Barry, you know, the chicken or the egg. Um, but certainly um, the even the most trusted media outlets had to find a way to continue revenue uh, at a time when it was being disrupted um, by social media platforms and um, shift in advertise, advertising data and advertising revenue. And I guess one of the questions I, you know, certainly that I think is posed by your, by your book is, um, is there any way to get the toothpaste back in the tube? What actually, you know, can change? Because certainly it does need to change. And, and I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. Uh, the notion that um, both individuals as well as policies and causes uh, can be, you know, undermined by um, what I'll refer to as information that is not accurate, but that is being rebroadcast or synthesized or reported on by trusted sources is a very, very fundamental issue. And I think that's what your book does in terms of raising the question. It's fundamental to, to our democracy and the protection of our democracy. And our, our president is now overseas, and he's, I, I think he's very clearly and rightfully defined a global battle right now between autocracies and democracies for the you know hearts and minds of people who are trying to decide which system actually serves them best. And so question, you know, is this irreparable harm or can, can this be improved upon, fixed, remediated, and if so, how? Well, let me drag the con- our conversation back a little bit to, you know, the other theme of my book, which had to do with the, has to do with the private intelligence industry. And uh, I'd like to think that, you know, what the book demonstrates is the fact that in many ways this has become a mercenary, renegade industry uh, that operates outside the law in large part because there are no laws to constrain it. Uh, case in point, being a company like Black Cube, which you know dispatches operatives under false identities to con people through deception out of information. Now, Black Cube would not thrive if it, if it were not for large law firms like, you know, Boy Schiller and other companies that, other firms that feel entitled to use the services of Black Cube, uh, because they want to get a leg up on their legal adversaries. Um, in this country, uh, there are laws against fraud. Uh, they tend to be laws that make it illegal to defraud somebody out of money. So if I come to you under pretext and say, David, uh, give me a thousand dollars. I'll get you ten thousand dollars. I got these great investments. It all turns out to be bogus. Um, I can be prosecuted for fraud. If a lawyer hires a black 
cube type company and says, uh, you can feel free to use any method of deception you want. And I will pay you to do that. In fact, I am hiring you because you are so good at deceiving and essentially defrauding people of information. I'm willing to pay you millions of dollars for your services. As long as we as a society find that acceptable behavior, it will continue to thrive and it is continuing to thrive. So, you know, as a threshold issue, you know, I believe that there needs to be a crackdown on the most abusive tactics that have become very commonplace within the corporate investigations industry. Now, flipping over to media, I think there also has to be a reckoning there within news organizations about why do news organizations give anonymity to people like corporate investigators who are being paid to plant stories in the news media, which is what took place with the Steele dossier and takes place all the time. So, you know, yes, there is a reason to give anonymity to whistleblowers, to people who might be jeopardizing their safety or even at times their uh, well-being and livelihoods to bring information to public light by using journalists to do so, I don't see any reason to give anonymity to people who are being paid to plant information. So I would like to see a discussion within newsrooms about how do we go forward uh, dealing with these operatives. In fact, I was just got an invitation. I'm kind of thrilled about it because the first like overt response to the book from a major Canadian newspaper asking me to come talk on this uh, subject to its staff. And, and they don't need me to lead that conversation, but I would love there to be those conversations going on within news organizations. So it's a two-pronged thing, I think is rightfully noted. What has also changed dramatically, uh, as highlighted by your book, is the ability of information to, you use the word metastasize, and to spread virally. There's that quote uh, attributed to Mark Twain, I don't know if he actually said it, about, you know, why being able to circle the globe before truth gets out of bed. That is the case in the current environment. And what I'm hearing you say is that uh, there, there really needs to be a professionalization of standards within the private investigative uh, business. Um, but having said that, there has to be, I'll use your word, a reckoning um, around journalistic standards as well. Is that a fair summary? Well, I, I would only alter it in this way. I don't think there's ever going to be a professionalization of standards within the private investigative industry because it's been and continues to be kind of a race to the bottom. Um, and I hope my book amply demonstrates that. Uh, what I am saying is that there should be a criminalization of practices, certain practices by corporate investigative firms because they're basically uh, an abuse of civil liberties. Uh, It's basically fraud. I mean, it's not fraud in a financial sense, 
but these firms are profiting from fraudulent behavior. It is not fraudulent behavior that is currently illegal, but it really is the type of fraudulent behavior that deserves to be illegal. So that's one thing. I, I, I really hold no, out no hope that uh, that corporate investigative firms will adopt a professional st- a standard you know, code of, of honor uh, because they've never operated under one. Okay, so your point is it requires external regulations. That's Absolutely. really the takeaway. Okay. Absolutely. And we've had cases, you know, where there are, there are now actions uh, because of new privacy laws in England where uh, private investigative firms, including Jules Kroll's firm, now known as K2 Intelligence, was held to account or forced to face legal consequences um, for what was abusive practices or, you know, what uh, practices that people found abusive, but they then had the option under British privacy laws to sue for, for uh, you know, and, and seek redress. We have nothing like that here in the United States. Um Within um, within the, the community of news organizations, uh, you know, again, um, I unfortunately am not a great believer in professional standards, but that does not mean that individual news organizations can have a reckoning and take an accounting. And I try in the book to make the argument uh, towards the end of the book that the handling of the, you know, the Trump dossier should be the basis for every news organization to review its interaction with corporate operatives and, and determine, you know, look, the people that are in the dark here are the people that the media allegedly says it serves. That is the public, the readers, the viewers, the listeners, you know, we, you know, pride ourselves on serving the public. However, we've also been deceiving the public because behind the curtains for years, there's been this dance going on between private operatives, you know, corporate investigators and journalists. And I think the time has come to pull that curtain away and give the public who we supposedly serve a view into that dance. And without getting um, into all the politics, Barry, many of the comments that you've made about the private investigative business race to the bottom in terms of standards, profiting from fraud and we'll call it misleading information, etc. If you look at recent polling data, that is how many people feel about the press, that they're profiting from putting out false narratives through political agenda that's not marked as, you know, commentary as paraded as news. And that there has been a race to the bottom in terms of some of the standards of what gets published and why. It's a race to get a story out first, what will attract the eyeballs, the clicks, etc. And and to do so fully cognizant of the protections that the laws provide, whether under the First Amendment or through, you know, through the Internet. You know, to the extent that you have any sense of optimism that there will be a revisiting of journalistic standards, 
how does that come about? Well, I have to say I don't, I don't have great optimism for that. I mean, I would like to think, because maybe I am at heart an optimist, that this will happen at some point. I mean, I can speak most uh, candidly to my own experience. Um, you know, I when you write a book, you never know what's going to happen to it, who's going to embrace it, who's going to criticize it, uh, whether people will ignore it or whatever the case may be. And, you know, I thought that this book, or I hoped in part that this book would stir a conversation, at least amongst people that write about the media, who have um, kind of set themselves, you know, kind of adopted the uh, persona of, you know, like media critic. Um, and, you know, it's been quite remarkable because um, those people have tended to avoid the book. And, you know, what I realized, and, and I saw this early, because in the book I talk about uh, the me a media columnist uh, at the Wall uh, at the Washington Post, Eric Wimple, who in 2019, I believe, wrote a series of 12 columns about the media's coverage of the dossier and was very highly critical and, you know, went after individual outlets or individual journalists about their cheerleading for the dossier without any, you know, basis in fact and how now they had all seemingly conveniently forgot about it. And, you know, um, Eric's, co Eric's columns, which were really interesting, uh, were roundly ignored. Um, and to the same degree that, you know, people within the news organizations that had a romance with the dossier are also kind of ignoring my book. And, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because, uh, absent our acknowledgements of mistakes and, you know, and well-meaning or well-intended mistakes or whatever the case may be, uh, there's not going to be a change. So, you know, any changes that do occur are going to have to come out of a realization that one, uh, we screwed up and we don't want to screw up like this again. And two, that there are these pernicious players out there who we as journalists have at times made common cause with. Um, and the, the reason why, uh, I was invited to Canada or, you know, I got this, uh, you know, there's possibility that I'll go to Canada to talk about this is that there's a really fascinating case involving Black Cube playing out up there, uh, which really kind of is a case study of efforts at min media manipulation. And, and the reporters that contacted me are reporters that cover, you know, hedge funds and, and other types of more exotic investment vehicles. And, and these journalists are, you know, like target number one for corporate investigators who, who want to manipulate the news on behalf of their clients. So they're going like, okay, well, 
we rely on these people for tips, but we're getting played. So how do we deal with that? And I would say uh, not only the potential to be played, but also to be the target of these investigative groups. As well. Oh, absolutely. And and that as well. And we we know that very recently, you know, the uh, a case in in England involving this German company Wirecard, which was a sort of massive financial fraud that when when uh, journalists from the Financial Times began investigating Wirecard, uh, they became the targets of investigation by Wirecard's investigators. And so, you know, what I like to tell journalists and try to make this point in the book as well, that, you know, the same corporate investigator who may be feeding you a tip on behalf of one client may be investigating you on behalf of another client. Picking up on a couple of themes that I believe are common to not only Spook, but also your coverage of the opioid crisis. Uh, the motivation of actors to get disinformation out there, to mislead, deceive the public. You just touched upon it a couple of minutes ago, is the fact that very often there is early reporting or early clarion warnings about what is happening that are ignored. I can't think of a more stark example than the devastation that has been caused by the, the opioid epidemic and the Um, self-inflicted wounds were committed against uh, the American people and actually broadly the international community. And we've just gone through a global pandemic that in many respects has overshadowed what's happened with the opioid crisis. But the news is out there with various settlements and actions being taken by attorney generals. I'd like you to share with the audience just a little bit about what the lessons really are, because I think there's some common denominator lessons. My reporting on Purdue Farm and OxyContin started very simply. Um, in 2000, late 2000, early 2001, I don't remember the exact date, I was approached by an editor. He had gotten a call from a source of his who worked on a pharmacy board, I believe is in the state of Ohio or Pennsylvania. And this regulator was telling my colleague, you know, there's this new hot drug on the street. No one's ever heard about it. People are buying it like crazy, prescription drug. And what's different about it is that its manufacturer has been going around marketing this drug as less addictive or less prone to abuse than traditional pain pills. And the name of the drug is OxyContin. Now, at that point in my life, I knew nothing about drugs, had never written about drugs, knew nothing about the pharmaceutical industry, and certainly had never heard of OxyContin or this company called Purdue. And then, you know, you do what a reporter normally does. You start making phone calls and you start tracking down information. It soon became apparent that everything that this source was speaking about was true and sort of became fascinated and and began to report on it and, as you mentioned, eventually write a book on it. And and one of the parallels, uh, if you will, 
that uh, came up, and I'm, I'm repeating something that I mentioned earlier, but with a with more meat on the bones, and that is that when Purdue Pharma, the Purdue Pharma's basic marketing shtick, if you will, for OxyContin was that you could use this drug uh, at whatever dosages you wanted as a doctor. You know, you could keep ramping up the dosage, and that was necessary because opioids as a class of drug uh, you know, the body adapts to them. So to get the same pain-killing effect, you need to increase the dosage. And they were saying you could ramp up this dosage as high as you wanted without any jeopardy of addiction or other ill effects to the patient. And to make that claim, uh, Purdue pointed to three studies, which it claimed showed that the long-term use of opioids at high dosages had no ill effect for patients. And these studies were repeated references to these studies, and the fact that these studies existed were repeated and repeated in the media constantly during the late 1990s, early 2000s, sort of when... Oxycontin was being promoted great guns. You know, you could find it in everything from the New York Times to Fortune magazine to Playboy magazine, you name it. And I decided that, like, that's all real interesting, but I'd rather go look at the studies myself and find out what these studies say. I eventually tracked down these studies, and when you actually looked at the studies, you realized that Purdue had cherry-picked small little uh, fragments of sentences out of these article, these studies, manipulated the information uh, to create a false impression and a false claim. And, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the gall of it or the, 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 the scam behind it was remarkable. And, you know, I eventually wrote about that in Painkiller. It was stunning to me that I was the first journalist to actually take the time and take the effort to do what was like a simple thing and the type of scrutiny that you should always be doing as a journalist. Uh, so in Missing Man, I went and I followed Bob Levinson's trail and talked to everyone he interviewed or met on his way to Iran the FBI, I discovered as I was doing that, had not done so. And, and so, you know, the point that I'm trying to make is that once you as a journalist do your job and go back and scrutinize information or interview people that are supposedly central to a story, you discover that the picture you're being presented is flawed or fake or incomplete, and that by doing your job, you can present the public with a more complete view of what occurred. And, and again, this same pattern replayed itself when it came to reporting about the the Trump dossier. Barry, how do we perhaps get both policymakers and the public to pay closer attention and respond? Because so much of what we're going through I'll quote the mayor of Houston after the electrical debacle in Texas recently. 
all of this was foreseeable, all of this was uh, preventable. And so you've given a uh, warning about uh, the relationship between private investigators and the press. You gave an early call around the opioid crisis. How do we get that to translate into action? I, I think that's a, a huge order, and I don't know really a simple way of answering it, other than to say we are spending societally and in the media and politically an inordinate, inordinate amount of time on sideshows. In fact, it seems like politically all we really are invested in are sideshows and not invested in examining the things that people need, the things that will make people's lives better. I mean, you see it as debate over infrastructure. This is not like a, a mega crisis, but, you know, we can't, as a society, politically, even get it together on making sure that we have good roads, good bridges, good uh, Wi-Fi service, good telecommunication service. And, you know, we have just got, hopefully, to get the current political poison out of our system so that we can arrive at a place where the needs of the public, the issues that are important to the public, are addressed. But it's going to take a while for this poison to work itself out, unfortunately. Point well taken, Barry. Again, uh, congratulations on your book, your prior work, and uh, look forward to a continued conversation with you. So thanks again, Barry. And thank you, David. I really appreciate your time and, and for having me on. Barry Meyer is the author of Spooked, The Trump Dossier, Black Cube, and the Rise of Private Spies. Individuals turn to rain for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Subscribe to Rain's core membership and get our daily Risk Book Digest weekly intelligence briefs on cyber, geopolitical, and financial crime, access to knowledge-sharing webinars, and breaking alerts on important risk developments. Find out how Rain can power your business to success at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. <laughs>